Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Alright, today we're going to be talking about another book. Today's book is titled Soul and Sword, The Endless Battle Over Political Hinduism. And to talk about it, I have the author Hindol Sen Gupta with me. Hindol, thank you for coming. And can I just say, you know, you came for the first time on the podcast six years ago. I think you're coming for the fourth time on the podcast. I want to start this podcast by stating... This was probably the the first time I would say, Hindol, I enjoyed I, I enjoy reading all your books, but this one I finished in one day. In one day I finished this book. It was so good. So I, I want to start by congratulating you. In fact, I was even telling the folks at Penguin, I was like, listen, this is an excellent book. So congratulations. It was a brilliant book, Hindol. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kushal. As you can see, I've got a red shawl to celebrate Christmas Day on your uh, podcast. And congratulations on 100,000 subscribers. I can see the silver button uh, from YouTube behind you. Uh, congratulations for having really built a podcast which allows the space and time to discuss fairly complex issues uh, with depth. Uh, and thank you very much for your compliments uh, on the book. Uh, yeah, a lot of people seem to have liked it. Uh, though, you know, it's, it's a very complicated um, topic. It has many layers. It has many subtexts. Uh, but I enjoyed writing it. And thank you very much. I'm really glad you enjoyed reading it. I, I loved it, man. I, I, and I, when I went through the book, my, my first reaction was, uh, I was like, damn, this book was needed. Because at a conceptual level, and maybe we can start with this. Like, I want to know, like, to write a book, on political Hinduism is somewhat of a tricky issue. Why? Because there are people who kind of deny the existence of political Hinduism through multitude of arguments by saying that Hinduism itself is not a faith system or sometimes it is a faith system. Or there are people on the so-called non-left in India who strawman by saying there is no political Hinduism, Hindutva is not political Hinduism, XYZ is not political Hinduism. So when did you actually decide, okay, I want to research this subject and talk about it? No, look, I mean, you know, um, funnily enough, uh, just before coming to your podcast, uh, I was writing a new introduction uh, to a new edition of Being Hindu. Uh, my book from about a decade ago, which a new edition is going to come out with its you know, celebration of 10 years of being Hindu. And I was writing there that in a sense, being Hindu was all about, you know, a personal, reflective, contemplative journey. And in 10 years, it has taken me uh, to another part, in a sense, of, uh, uh, of the world's engagement with Hinduism or Hinduism's engagement with the world, which is political Hinduism. And therefore, Soul and Sword, which is really the history of political Hinduism. Look, Kushal, I mean, all the arguments that you just mentioned, um, you know, uh, allow me to say that they are quite facetious. They have no meaning. These are polemical things that people say. Often they have some agenda. Sometimes they don't really understand what they're talking about. You know, what has happened with social media is that people pick up, uh, you know, liberal arts or sociological or, or you know, uh, 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 terminology, you know, and they sort of throw it. 
but uh, in, in tweets and stuff, but they don't really know what that really means. Like, for instance, people keep saying Hinduism is not really an ism. But how many of those people actually really understand what that really means? They don't. They're just randomly throwing it in a tweet, right? Um, so what do you mean that there is no political Hinduism? I mean, that assertion itself is quite baffling to anybody with any serious work, right? Because anything, um, obviously, if I were to sort of just to give an example, Kushal, if I were to just sit in my house today and lock myself or go away in a you know mountain cave and meditate for the next whatever 40 years, sure, there is nothing to do with the world and nothing to do with politics, right? But anything, not just a faith, but anything, any idea that engages with the world must deal with the politics of the world. Hinduism as a faith of more than a billion people engages with society and the world every single day and therefore it interacts and responds to the you know the politics of the world every day so how can we say that there is no political hinduism i mean that is frankly a bit of a ridiculous assertion it has no meaning uh, i don't know why people say such things but actually if you really think about it it has absolutely no meaning because obviously uh, in the, you know on one hand, and here's the funny thing, Kushal, uh, often the same people will claim that, look, here was this great Hindu kingdom. And then they will say, there was, there's no political Hinduism. What do you think this great Hindu kingdom was doing? Like, that makes no sense. Right? I mean, it's, uh, if there were great Hindu kingdoms, and even in, in today, if there is a, you know, great Hindu political party, if you want to call it that, well, what are these, these institutions doing? They're obviously dealing with politics. So how can you say that there is no political Hinduism? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't see the logic of that, to be honest. Uh, I, I agree with you, but I, it's very important that I give you other perspectives so that, you know, we can deal with them. But okay, so let's start with this. I think I always do this because of my background in philosophy. Let's sure. define political Hinduism. So, Hindu. Yeah. What is political Hinduism? And le yeah. let's try to be not just give a one-two line definition. Explain political Hinduism at a conceptual yeah. level. No, it's very simple. Actually, it's not a. It's not a very like you know. It, it doesn't require a lot of time at all. It's very simple, Kushal. Any idea, right? Not just a religious idea. Any idea that engages with society, the world, must deal with politics and therefore has a political aspect to it, right? And religions are fundamentally political ideas because they are deeply embedded and enmeshed with the nature of, uh, because they deal with large volumes of people, with the nature of power in the world, right? And therefore, they must have a political aspect. They always have a political aspect. What is political Hinduism? It is the politics that Hindus do. It's as simple as that. Anybody who can, this is entirely self-referential. If you consider yourself a Hindu, your political activity in a sense, right, which in any shape or form engages with Hinduism, is political Hinduism. So if in any dealings that have political ramifications of yours, and by you I mean any person who calls themselves a practicing Hindu or, a, or even just a Hindu, if they conduct anything, any business with the world where, um, you know, there is a political aspect and Hinduism is referred to in any shape or form, it doesn't matter which deity, it doesn't matter which subsect, whatever, right? If that exists, then that is political Hinduism. It's as simple as that.
Fair enough. So political Hinduism is basically an activity of any kind of organizational ability that is created by the Hindus to solve their societal problems by engaging with the powers that be at that point of time. What, whatever, whether it is a, a monarchical system or whether in, in today's world it is it is a democratic republic or constitutional republic, that kind of a system. And also, another question that often comes Hindol is modern day political Hinduism a response to political Islam and political Christianity? Oh, there, there again, uh, may I uh, suggest that there is a simple answer to that also, right? Uh, many people ask the question, why do why do Hindu texts, seminal texts, you know, not later day texts, but seminal texts, why do the Vedas and the Upanishads and so on and so forth not refer to the other, right? There is no other. If you read the Vedas, they don't, or the Upanishads, they don't talk about, oh, well, you know, there's this other, right? Well, they don't because the people who contemplated these, these notions, these theories, these ideas over centuries, in their universe, there was no other, right? But at some point, because Hinduism exists in the world, an other came into being, whether it was Islam at some point, whether certain virulent strains of Christianity, uh, Buddhism at some point, there was an other, right? And that other, the moment there was an other, ramifications of politics came into being, right? Even Hinduism's great debate with Buddhism, surely, that, you know, we are not naive enough to suggest that that debate was purely scriptural. There were obviously political aspects to that debate, right? Uh, because obviously Buddhism was um, encountering and, you know, its power was getting great emperors to embrace it. And Hinduism had a response to it. Dali Shankaracharya had a response to it, right? So there was a response uh, that Hinduism sort of formulated in a sense. It was, it was the ideational response. It was not a, you know, it, it was not a response in the street, so to speak. It was an ideational response, but it was a response nonetheless. And that response was fundamentally, of course, there was a deep philosophical aspect to that response, but the response was also political. And therefore, therein, you know, again, appears political Hinduism. So wherever there is an encounter with the other, therein, there will be elements of politics. And therefore, you know, if it is Hinduism that we're talking about, therein lies political Hinduism. So I would so, say, just to quickly complete, I would say that political Hinduism exists far before. I mean, obviously, with the coming of the Islamic invasions, there was a very powerful resistance that emerged. But even before that, there were aspects of political Hinduism. Fair enough. Now, why I asked you this question is recently Ramachandra Guhaji made this very interesting comment on uh, a, a chat with Karan Thapar, where he said... Uh, now, Hinduism is a non-congregational religion. Now, I disagree with that point itself because uh, it's just congre the congregational style of Hinduism differs from Islam and Christianity. It doesn't mean that Hinduism has no concept of congregation. We have the Kumbh Mela. We have multiple things that we, we do. We are just a decentralized religion that congregates at the same time, uh, unlike Islam and Christianity. But what is very interesting is that, uh, don't you think why I'm connecting this is like one of the points that you raise in the book is 
is the congregational aspect, especially you know during the British era, as you try to cover that era under the British and post the British, a lot of things that political Hinduism is achieving is one of the significant factors, in my opinion, that comes out in your book. See, because you cover many, many personalities in the book, right? You start from, let's say, the R.S. Samaj time and, and Aurobindo and many others. And then you get into Gandhi, the the, the tussle between uh, Savarkar and Nehru, their, their, their commonalities and their, uh, their, their differences. And then you talk about multiple people. But essentially, a lot of them, including Gandhi, they were trying to congregate people, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, um, you know, Kushal, uh, you spent a lot of time in Mumbai and I believe at the moment you're sitting in Mumbai, right? In Maharashtra, how did Ganesh Chaturthi and Ganesh Utsav become this gigantic congregational, um, you know, festival, right? At one point in history, uh, Ganesh Chaturthi and Ganesh Utsav was something that people did in their homes. It became this gigantic, you know, community-based congregational festival because there was a sense of a show of the community coming together for a cause. There was reason why it happened, right? And, you know, in my book talks about, um, you know, one of the fallacies that my book breaks is that uh, the word Hindutva uh, comes from Savarkar or even Chandranath Basu. And I, of course, show that actually, no, it actually has the same source as Vande Mataram, the book called Anandamat written by Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay. So, you know, uh, even Anandamat, if you read the book, it is about, in a sense, a mini congregation of monks who gather together and hide in forests, right? And then attack the enemy, right? So this congregational aspect, I mean, you know, Ramchandra Guha, what he said is only very partially correct because some parts of Hinduism are not congregational. But there are many, many other parts of Hinduism that are deeply congre congregational. Allow me to give you another example, right? Apart from the um, the Ganesh festival that we uh, spoke about from Maharashtra and other parts of India, let's talk about Sri Chaitanya. When Sri Chaitanya appears in Bengal, you know he is gathering together hundreds of people and singing and dancing on the streets, singing about Hari, singing about Krishna, uh, singing the Mahamantra. What is it if not congregational? Right? What is Durga Puja if not congregational? So I don't yeah. think what Ramchandra Guha said is correct. I mean, he's taking a very loose um, interpretation or a very nascent interpretation of Hinduism here. It is true that in uh, Hinduism is, like you said, not congregational uh, at a day-to-day -day level, perhaps. But again, I would I would question even that. If you go to any of Hinduism's great pilgrimage sites, are you genuinely going to tell me that the site of the Shitti Vinayak Mandir in Mumbai is not a site of congregation? Absolutely. Are you really going to tell me that the Kali Ghat Mandir uh, or Great Shakti Peet in, in Calcutta is not a site of con daily congregation? Of course it is. So it depends on how you define this. And I think Ramchandra Guha is defining it in a particular way, but that's quite limited. There are many other aspects that are not covered in, in his definition. So if, if I was to ask you this question, because uh, is it safe to say that you have looked covered ma a major portion of the last 300 years, 
loosely. I, I'm yeah, I'm extending it. I I could have easily said 200 years also in the book, but uh, if I was to extend it to 300 years, who do you think, according to you? Listen, in your book, you spend a lot of time uh, on uh, Anand Mat, on Savarkar, Savarkar Nehru interactions, Savarkar Gandhi uh, deviations. Patel, obviously, because you know you've written a book on Patel, so you also talk about Patel, and then later on you enter what I call the more absolute current day uh, political Hinduism avatar. Yes. Post, you know, you make it uh, enter into the RSS era and post RSS Advani Vaj uh, Vajpayee ji era. And interesting today is 25th of Vajpayee ji ka. Wo kya pata nahi BJP banati hai kuch to. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't follow uh, all those things political parties do, but. Another thing is that uh, uh, then you end with the Modi Shah era. Now let's let's divide this. Can, can we divide this largely into phase A, nascent level modern political Hinduism? Then phase B is that uh, you know now we we are responding to political Islam and the British rule together and building the the intellectual bedrock of political Hinduism. And and I think the theoretical framework you mentioned in the book is that Din Dayalupadhyay. You spend a lot of time on Dindyalupadhyay, also Pandit Dindyalupadhyay, and then the last is the current avatar, the Modi Shah avatar. Now, let's break this into these three phases. Now, let's talk about these three phases. How would you say phase one, phase two, phase three? And you can disagree with me that no, Kushal, this is not the three phase. It could be more. And I would, but but after reading your book, I, I saw it this way. This is my interpretation of your book. So, how sure. would we define it? No, look. I mean, uh, yeah. Here's the thing, right? This is the other other sort of intervention my book does, right? See, we have never been able to comprehensively write a history of political Hinduism because of one sort of uh, googly that was academically thrown, especially by sort of you know uh, certain kinds of uh, you know pro left academia, right? What is that googly? Well, they would say Shivaji Maharaj. Okay. Shivaji Maharaj resisted, resisted the Mughals. Great, wonderful. Now, was Shivaji Maharaj fighting as a Hindu? Or was he fighting just as a king who was fighting oppression? Vijayanagar Kingdom. Did Vijayanagar Kingdom uh, resist, you know, the Bahmani Sultanates and their march into southern India? Was it the bulwark of Hindu power? Or was it just another kingdom caught in the sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, interactions with other neighboring kingdoms and at some point fell, right? And I see in my book that this is a ridiculous, you know, uh, thing to be stuck in. We should go beyond this. We should talk about in the world of political Hinduism, what is the narrative that's important to the ideology? Because it doesn't matter. We will never be able to, we cannot go back to Shivaji Maharaj and ask him, how do you see yourself? But we do know, we do know today how, uh, you know, the, the um, innovators and the entrepreneurs, so to speak, the political entrepreneurs of political Hinduism, how they see these things. And I say in my book that, well, Shivaji Maharaj is important today to the BJP, to the RSS, to all the people who believe in political Hinduism. Also, not just because he was a great warrior and he was such a revered figure, but through the ages, he's been important. Shivaji Maharaj is talked about by... Um, you know, by Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda, right? Shivaji Maharaj is important to Tagore. Shivaji Maharaj is important to Vishy Aurobindo and so many others, right? So therefore, he develops a sort of iconography about himself that then streams through the ages and makes him 
you know this this hugely valued figure in the in in this universe right yeah so Therefore, in your book you talk about yes. that can you explain this bit in the book because i'm on shivaji maharaj the bit about him having muslims in his army and how that is twisted by yeah. both sides yeah so look i mean again they will say well how can you say that shivaji maharaj was you know like this hindu emperor and one side will say well he said hindu hindu vishrajya right uh, self rule for the hindus the counter argument to that but but you know he had muslim generals now my argument there is and the same thing with akbar right you know you say well akbar had hindu uh, generals you know who went to fight the homes you know at the end of the day it was rajput generals in the mughal army and so on and so forth right now the point is here's the thing i see in my book that there are other ways of looking at this shivaji maharaj while wanting hindavi sarajya and fighting mughal oppression obviously at the same time at a societal level was taking the best talent available to him in his armed forces that's totally logical and obviously when two faiths no matter what the sort of you know um, you know relationships between them and uh, no matter what the sort of um, you know collision at a you know state power level at a societal level obviously when faiths live side by side there is interaction there is human interaction you can't deny that right so obviously he took the best talent out of that human interaction so to use that to say that no 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 he did not see himself as fighting for a hindu cause is not entirely correct but having said that can you see kushal that there will never be an end to this debate because we cannot go back and ask the protagonist well, how did you actually see yourself therefore i say we need to go beyond this debate we need to go beyond this debate and write a comprehensive which is what my attempt has been a comprehensive history of political hinduism based on the self references that the ideology has and in that ideology the 2 300 years that india fought back between the ghaznavid and the gauri invasions is very important right shivaji maharaj is very important i mentioned naipaul in my book and many others Vijayanagar is important, right? Vivekananda is important. Bhumkim and Anandamat is important, and so on and so forth. You can go on and on after that, right? But all of these things are important in the self-references also of the story of political Hinduism, and that's why, as writers, as people who want to understand this better, it's important to us, or they are important to us. Yeah, but then. <laughs> this entire discussion about political hinduism you know at times i find it to be so confusing because on one side i have read scholarship in the in the west and in the left uh, that there is no such thing as hinduism and then at the same time uh, and then at the same time the then there is uh, this side that everything that bad that happens in our society is hinduism i'm like but this existed for 3000 years if, if there is no hinduism and then you have the new hinduism hypothesis then what was that How can that be Hinduism? I mean, decide कर लो ना आपस में. This this is but now I want to talk about this. This is also mentioned in your book. Good that you pointed this out. Now one of the projects of political Hinduism has been to re rewrite history. Mm. Uh, now you you touch upon it in the book is because for example, uh, you know, uh, Ibn Qasim came. Now he came in six seventy or six seventy three or whenever he came, right? and then the ghazni gori thing happened after 1000 uh, 
Now, there was a 300 year period now what the hell happened then and we supposed to talk about that also right as a society what the hell was happening then now a political hindu project has to look at all these factors too which is why it's very important how you know you, you correctly explained that uh, shivaji maharaj has now become a pan india figure and many others have become pan india figures from uh, while <laughs> during their lifetime maybe they were not looked at it uh, in that way but post uh, Uh, the evolution of our society so what do you think were the key factors in this intellectual evolution of hindu society where they started latching on to figures from the past and making them pan india figures i'm not saying they were not but in the modern sense where you know you have mass media blasting things all the time and and every side uses it to their own or to their own benefit where do you pinpoint this a uh, need in the political hindu uh, history where the first baby steps were taken that we need to start because i know you talk about instances of uh, i forgot the name uh, in 1919 or 1920 the first volume is written and and you try to explain the whole history of india where do you think were the first steps started to be taken to rewrite the history of india you know this is a very interesting answer I think the first steps to rewrite the history of India was actually done by certain kinds of Marxist historians post Indira Gandhi, when the really the academic power shifted deep into the hands of the left. You know, even in uh, you know a lot of the sort of you know so-called right uh, don't like Nehru very much, but you know even in Nehru's time. there was a consensus about what india was this idea that there is no hinduism there is no civilization all of these ideas are very hard left ideas that emerged only after the handover in a sense of india's academia in the hands of the deep left that's why i write about the commonalities between nehru's writings and savarkar's writings you see if jawaharlal nehru were to come alive today panditji would not deny that india is a sacred geography india as a sacred geography would be denied by arundhati roy today india as a sacred geography would be denied by the hard left today india's national movement for most of it had no problems in accepting all of these things and in fact had patel lived on i think all of this would have got far more established now nehru had this idea that he wanted to make politics secular therefore the somnath story i'm not going to repeat it most people know that he tried to stop the you know rebuilding of somnath temple and so on and so forth but even he accepted that fundamentally india is a deeply spiritual civilization it is the sacred geography it is the sacred geography that makes india special all of this actually got rewritten and this idea that there is no such thing as hinduism hinduism is only caste discrimination you know uh, hinduism is trying to take you know this phrase that they use animistic traditions and you know trying to destroy animistic traditions this is all ridiculous rubbish i mean if you go to these animistic traditions they are worshiping the same gods and goddesses that in various formats that hindus around the country worshiped it is only when these particular agenda driven researchers looked at this 
they found animistic you know i'm reminded by this uh, uh, by this wonderful incident which made me laugh and laugh there was one um, uh, you know sort of strange hard left reviewer who reviewed bahubali okay bahubali one the first part and wrote this scathing or at least she thought it was scathing article saying bahubali is certainly not hindu to which somebody actually wrote in the comment section of the website where it was published so what do you think prabhas was holding up on his shoulders what was that black thing he was holding up you know it, it has become as ridiculous as this a film and this is and, and it's bears repeating a film where the protagonist emerges carrying a giant shivling will be seen by quote unquote educated reviewers who will come to the conclusion that it has nothing to do with hinduism are we idiots i guess we are we idiots right yeah and this is why you know i was at an indi tv debate once where this strange woman from i don't know where she was from said hinduism is a 20th century uh, invention which really like i mean i didn't know what to say that's why i told her look i mean at one point you guys used to tell us that hinduism is a 19th century invention a uh, invention now you're saying it's a 20th century invention i mean tomorrow you might say hinduism only started in 2014 it's possible so i mean it, you know the ridiculousness of this all so the real rewriting of the culture of this land actually happened in the 80 70 late 70s and 80s when the power of indian academia went very deep into the hands of the hard left in fact even the sort of you know even the moderate left or the early left never denied these things but there emerged at a particular point a very hard very ideologically you know sort of bitter left which entirely wanted a sort of communist revolution in india and was flabbergasted that this revolution wasn't happening and you know that's why the naxal revolution happened and so on and so forth you know in bengal and other parts of the country these are the people this is the ideology that rewrote and tried to erase india's indigenous you know culture and civilization and they are the people who say these things like you said there is no hinduism hinduism is just caste all these sort of strange things yeah i want to focus i want to read this bit from your book now because i think the savarkar nehru bit i want to cover but i want to talk about this before Please. we get into the difference between these two streams of ideation with the indian freedom movement two contradictions must be highlighted because these give a sense of the reasons for the resilience of the ideas of political hinduism first it is worth noting that there was a significant overlap of vocabulary between the men whose ideas fueled political hinduism and others who are considered their quote secular alternatives primarily gandhi consider for instance the use of hindu iconography and concepts if there was one that connects bal gangadhar tilak vinayak damodar savarkar aurobindo ghosh sri aurobindo and mohandas karamchand mahatma gandhi it is that they all spoke about sanatan dharma they were all concerned with upholding this eternal code as a fundamental pillar of indian nationalism and and i remember you used that quote of sri aurobindo also the famous quote where he talks about if you are a nationalist then you have to be for sanatan dharma they are not uh, you know separate from one another so so let's talk about this that this this you know gandhi was famously uh, known you know again you quote gandhi in the book also gandhi says that 
hey, I don't believe in cow slaughter. <laughs> I believe in Hinduism. Uh, you know, he talks about Varnashram, cow slaughter and many other things in that famous uh, quote of Gandhi. Now, what do we make of that? This is like, where I connect this is, Savarkar on the other hand said that Hindutva is the superset. Hinduism and the spiritual practice of Hinduism is the subset where you do what you want to do. I don't care. But Hindutva has to be the superset. So how did, let's say, Gandhi, Savarkar, Sri Aurobindo and all these people maneuver around these things? See, like you pointed out, I mean, it's so funny, right? I mean, today in 2023, we are debating whether Sanatan Dharma should exist or not. But lo and behold, even the people who are saying these things, many of them, you know, they're sort of, you know, original leaders, the origin stories, original leaders, they all believed in Sanatan Dharma. There was a there was a consensus on these things. There was a consensus that Sanatan Dharma was important and it needed to be preserved. It's only today in 2023 we find people saying, oh, it should be destroyed, which is quite ridiculous. It, it has no meaning, right? Now the point is, and I must, you know, take a little bit of a detour and mention this because I mentioned Arundhati Roy. You know, I once wrote an essay on why Arundhati Roy hates Gandhi. Why would she hate Gandhi? Like, what's the logic? And why did she hate Gandhi so much? Right? She hates Gandhi and many of these very hard left people hate Gandhi. Because you see, no matter what Gandhi's flaws, no matter what his flaws, you cannot deny that Gandhi lived and died saying, in fact, proclaiming that he was a practicing Hindu. You cannot deny that. That much no one can deny. If you can bring down Gandhi, then the, you know, the, the most powerful sort of advocate of Hinduism, who is, you know, renowned around the world, revered around the world, you know, um, worshipped even in, you know, in, in parts of the world. Bringing him down would be, at least they see it like this, a, a body blow to Hinduism. Bringing down Gandhi would be a body blow to Hinduism. That's why they hate Gandhi with a vengeance. Now, of course, the so-called right also just doesn't like Gandhi for many reasons. But, and they, you know, there are all kinds of people, so they say all kinds of things. But I have always maintained, Bharat will always need Gandhi. There is a particular place for Gandhi. Please understand, this doesn't mean that one can't criticize his views. That's an entirely different thing. You can criticize his views. After all, he was human. But there is a particular thing that he represents. And I think many people must understand this, that the hard left really wants to bring down Gandhi because even Gandhi, like you pointed out through an extract of my book, Gandhi, like Savarkar said, Sanatan Dharma is important. You know, fact, I, want, I want to read that Aurobindo quote, uh, you know, the Uttarpara speech. Yes, from the Uttarpara speech. I, 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 love, I love reading this every time. I spoke once before with this force in me and I said it then that this movement is not a political movement and that nationalism is not politics but a religion, a creed, a faith. I say it again today, but I put it in another way. I say no longer that nationalism is a creed, a religion, a faith. I say that it is the Sanatan Dharma for which for, which for us is nationalism. 
this hindu nation was born with sanatan dharma with it it moves and with it it grows i repeat with it it moves and with it it grows when sanatan dharma declines then the nation declines and if sanatan dharma were capable of perishing within with the sanatan dharma it would perish the sanatan dharma that is nationalism this is the message that i have to speak to you i don't think so you cannot uh, you can have a crystal clear endorsement of what it means to be an indian nationalist now indol this is something you and i touched upon briefly on our podcast in ani also correct i think one of the accusations on political hindus or political hinduism is they use this slur of hindu nationalist and it is often confused and what i loved about your book is you actually try to clear this conception that you know uh, in the book you mentioned this that they are often called right wing and fascistic but if you look at what they stood for they are actually pretty modern all these so called political hindus they believed in upliftment of society you used savarkar as a prime example in i believe you use savarkar a lot because honestly in my opinion savarkar was the person who believed in smashing all these orthodoxies when it comes to societal malaises and how do we deal with this as political you know if somebody wants to explain political hinduism to somebody outside india because see i have a diasporic audience also now they always ask me this question like uh, since the last two years all my talks in the diaspora is i keep telling them become a political hindu and they say they call us hindu nationalists then so how do they deal with this and now that you have written this book but you know i don't even understand what is the problem of, of even if you are a hindu nationalist what does a hindu nationalist mean it means that there is a practicing hindu who is very determinedly patriotic at least to me that's what it means i i genuinely don't understand what is the problem what is the problem of being a hindu nationalist at the end of the day whatever you know words they use or not every country is deeply nationalistic about themselves i mean look at america right america is a fountainhead of you know people being deeply patriotic and deeply nationalistic what is the issue you know this this strange hard left idea and of course coupled with this entire sort of you know free economy sort of idea you know that that came from the last 30 40 years of free trade or freer trade gave this idea that you know somehow one day all borders will fall and we will just merge into this global society because we all wear levi's jeans and eat mcdonald's that is absolutely idiotic it has no meaning i mean today we recognize even as we are trying to rebuild all the borders and we're talking about french shoring and you know shortage of supply chains we are realizing why borders are important look human beings want and communities want to be unique they want to retain this unique thing whatever that unique thing is about themselves they don't want to diminish it but that doesn't mean they don't want to live in harmony in the comity of nations a hindu nationalist it is in my opinion is only somebody who may be a practicing hindu but is also deeply patriotic and deeply nationalistic about india's growth india's success that person is not trying to necessarily you know do anything wrong or bad to anybody else 
And in fact, as an Indian who lives in India and whose entire career and life has been, you know, has been a, uh, you know, part of India's journey, at the end of the day, you know, I feel the same way. I want my countries. You know, I'm not like Raghuram Rajan who asks, "Why are why does India want to be a superpower?" What, I mean, what kind of a question is this? You know, Ashley Tellis recently said at a podcast, "The Indian elite are unique in one way." one particular way it is the only elite in india that does not want its own country to acquire great power status every other country america the uk various countries in europe in asia china and japan everybody wishes to acquire great power status they are not necessarily trying to you know do anything bad to anybody I mean, some of them are but not everybody is trying to do something bad to somebody else but they want to acquire great power status the indian elite is the strange beast which always tells us us idiot indians so to speak that no 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 why should we be a superpower are if you don't want india to be a superpower then why are you sitting in in a superpower you are living in a superpower you know getting your dollars in a superpower coming back home and giving gyan to your you know fellow indians actually he may not even be an indian passport holder i don't know whether he is or not that india should not be a superpower what can be more ridiculous and that is cheered by our idiotic media saying oh wow wow what a wonderful statement why should india be a superpower you moron if india doesn't acquire greatness all your businesses and your lives will remain miserable please think about that so we are a you know i mean i'm sorry today i'm obviously feeling agitated we are a particularly moronic society that accepts all this nonsense no no i i like it uh, agitated hindol is fun hindol for those who don't know i i know hindol agitated hindol is fun but just to add to that hindol think about it kushal just... i mean what am i saying that's wrong right it no, makes no not. sense yeah you know these you know my my problem with this mindset is you know this is that typical you know indian uncle that says na oh beta paisa to ka mahal paisa sab kuch nahi hota you know you're you're from delhi so all those punjabi uncles who give these third class third rated lines and and then they have shit loads of it and they will never give up their money they, they will always keep so imagine ramachandra gua beat raghuram rajan at this huh? 13 years ago the university of british columbia has posted this talk which has 49000 views after 13 years Ramachandra Guha's talk: Ten reasons why India will not and must not become a superpower. <laughs> I don't even understand this. I just fail to understand this. I don't get it. But I'll tell you why. On a serious note, Kushal, let me explain. In my opinion, at least, why this exists. You know, India always had what I call a gatekeeping syndrome in our society. What is the gatekeeping syndrome? a small number of elite had everything and they wanted the country to remain poor so that no one else has anything else so they never challenge anything that they have right it's a bit like in various parts of india people become part of these clubs due to some network or whatever and immediately shut the door to everybody else right so this is a particular problem of india you see a lot of you know the indian elite in delhi or in many other parts of the country don't like the fact that many common people today now go to ivy league colleges in oxford and cambridge and so on and so forth they are deeply irritated 
I mean, one idiot, for instance, you know, uh, Tunku Vardarajan was deeply upset one day on Twitter. How did I go to uh, Columbia and Oxford? Because, you know, his father was a great chumcha of Indira Gandhi. So, therefore, obviously, they went there to such colleges. How can the common people go, right? I mean, this is, the, this is exactly the mentality. And their mentality is that India should remain poor. Everybody else should get nothing. So that their, you know, their power, their influence, their elitism is never challenged. Their problem is this. And I began to write about this right after, you know, because in a sense, I'm a child of Indian liberalization. This is why many of the Indian elite don't even like liberalization. One idiot in one festival got up and later on, I, of course, I found out that his father was also chief secretary of a state got up and say, no, no, what is liberalization? Yeah, why should we liberalize? Ah, this is all rubbish. Even before this, we were so good. Of course, before this, you were good, you idiot. Because you had everything and nobody else had anything. You don't like liberalization because liberalization allowed millions of other peoples to have what you have. Right? So their entire fiefdoms have got challenged. And it has got shaken. And now to shaken, to kya, people are kicking the doors open. Right? This is why they hate it so much. Yeah, this is why they resent it so much. They don't want the doors open for the anybody else but their small subset. This is the problem. Now I want to focus on this. Going back to Nehru and Savarkar, I think this should be the most important. Uh, to me, this was my favorite segment of the book. I loved reading this, and I'm going to read a section out of this. Using the shared conception, they arrive at divergent destinations. You're talking about Nehru and Savarkar. Nehru talks of an India built as an ancient palimpsest on which layer upon layer of thought and reverie had been inscribed and yet no succeeding layer had completely hidden or erased what had been written previously. But for Savarkar, assimilation and not coexisting layering is the key to nationhood. For instance, for Muslims, he wants worship as heroes, our 10 great avatars, only adding Muhammad as the 11th as the criterion for entry into the embrace of nationhood. This difference is stark. For instance, in describing Mahmud of Ghajni's invasion of India, Mahmud was far more a warrior than a man of faith. And like many other conquerors, he used and exploited the same name of religion for a conquest. I think this paragraph, Hindol, is a summary of the difference between the politics of India today. What Absolutely. is India's chitti? What is our identity? And political Hinduism fights against Nehruvian ideas, basically disagreeing that you cannot say India's identity is not Sanatani. You just cannot say that. And this is where, you know, Nehru wants a more salad bowl kind of an India where everybody is ghettoized and living in their own ghettos. And Savarkar is like, no, no, absorb our features. We will absorb yours because Savarkar thinks like a Hindu. And at its core, I believe nobody wants to, you know, bell the cat or talk about the uncomfortable reality that somewhere down the line, it is also a problem of monotheism and non-monotheism living together. Non-monotheistic faiths and monotheistic faiths have this problem and have this constant tension. And uh, and to, to a great extent, I think in India, we did succeed through Bulle Shah, Waris Shah, Sachal Sarmas and many others, many others to, you know, reduce that tension, Kabir and many yeah, such people. You know, Ram, and, you know, more recently, um, you know, only uh, and in the historical terms, very recently, Ram Krishna Paramhans, right, who said, Joto Mot, Toto Pot, as many as there are ways, there are paths to God. 
absolutely absolutely and i think you're absolutely right that this is the difference this is the this is the core difference right that you know one perspective says and you know this entire quote that you read out that no no even mahmud of ghazni was actually really a warrior and only used religion i mean one should ask you know maybe one should go back in time and ask pandit nehru did you go back and ask you know mahmud of ghazni whether he was fighting for faith or fighting for you know land come on i mean this assertion itself makes no sense right when because we know you know we know um from that period's history that um you know islamic conquest whenever it went to a country uh these two things went hand in hand you know the complete you know submission and submersion of that country's uh, you know uh local indigenous culture and of course you know its riches you know these two things went hand in hand so of course uh, pandit nehru wants this sort of you know this this sort of mosaic approach right whereas tawarkar is saying no this land has a unique identity and culture and everybody who lives in this land is absolutely free to you know have their own private practices but they have to in a sense buy into a common culture right that buying into a common culture is really really important and you know a great example of that of course is you know our late president apj abdul kalam right uh definitely you know in private faith he was muslim but definitely in his life and his bearing he was part of the common culture of india right it's a great example and in a sense sabarkar is arguing for that so exactly this is a great division and this is the ideological split which we see in india even today and that answer you have given in the book again i want to read this quote because it's so perfect in nehru's imagination of india there is no defined other whereas the other for savarkar is acutely established for savarkar india is defined by influences that it must repel while for nehru even in the most repellent of experiences india is constructed of that which it absorbs even from those that attack it this is such a beautiful line that you have written in the book because i think it encapsulates the difference of opinion i love this line and and that's why i had highlighted it i was like this is so nicely written that at the end of the day if you think about it i i am i have never denied it i like i i don't agree with many things savarkar says but i of think course. he understood no. he understood hindu society and indian society the best he understood it the best he exactly understood what the problems were and he exactly understood what we need to do but now let's go into the final phase which is rss comes up rss then starts you know maneuvering around society and then a bit of rss gets into the bharatiya janata party now if you want to talk about true political hinduism bjp is the true embodiment of political hinduism right it is the hindutva political party of india point number 1 we cannot deny that so now if i was to ask you what are the differences between a bharatiya janata party political hinduism and all these great figures like savarkar vivekanand and all these political hindus yes vivekanand also i think was a political hindu so what was the difference between them and what has it culminated now in in bjp no i think there are obviously um, you know basic uh, differences i mean obviously none of these great figures conceptualized the modern political party right i mean of course 
that is one large difference, right? The BJP is a contemporary modern political party, and it does all the things that modern political parties do. And it also makes the sort of, you know, negotiations, accommodations, compromises that political parties have to do in order to survive. I think one of the things that, um, uh, you know, uh, at least is important to note, and this is particularly important to note about Narendra Modi as Prime Minister. I think Narendra Modi as Prime Minister has reiterated, look, he's Prime Minister of a very large and very complex country with pulls and pressures from every side. But at least in his conversation, in his communication, he consistently refers to an ideal, which is the ideal presented by political leaders. That, uh, you know, anybody governing India must have a certain distance from certain things. That India's culture is structured in a particular manner and ought to be respected and treasured. That India is built up of great pilgrimage spaces, places which need to be restored in a particular way. That India's, all of these things, not only have a footprint within the dominion of India or in the, in the, in the, in the geographical uh, domain of India, it also has footprint around the world and that needs to be projected. So therefore, Southeast Asia, you know, Korea, Japan, all kinds of places, right? All of these things, the underlining of all of these things is the aspect of political Hinduism that I think he lives on um, with Narendra Modi in the contemporary time with the BJP. Remember, the BJP, though, even today on paper, in its in its founding document, is committed to something called Gandhian socialism. Now, I explain in my book why this is very important. Because if you look at the economic thought of the of the RSS, right, and the BJP, so I take examples of uh, you know Deen Dayal Upadhyay. I talk about Dattopan Thingdi. I talk about how they are constantly saying that. Neither communism nor capitalism is absolutely right fit for India. India must develop its own path. And, you know, I have, I have explained in many lectures, and there are two elements that I see, you know, in their writings, um, which are my sort of derivative ideas. One is that there are, they are emphasizing that there must be a balance in society. A society that becomes imbalanced, becomes only about money or only about power, can never succeed. That's number one. Balance is very important. Second is this thing that the West looks at time in a linear fashion, whereas India looks at time in a cyclical way. That goes around, what goes around comes around. And you must, in your policy making or your conceptualization of how India must function, people must think about time in this manner. You know, there is no, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that Indian politics or Indian politicians or leaders should not, at least in the approach of political Hinduism, look at things as a zero-sum game. Time is cyclical. What goes around comes around. There will be a moment where you will also be in that situation, you know, as somebody who has lost or somebody who's been you know, badly, whatever, defeated or things like that. So that is very important. And also, this cyclical time also gives us gives a particular structure to our society, which means that human beings contemplate not only their life today, but they also contemplate the afterlife, right? All of this brings a certain contemplative nature to society. 
which I think is people like Dattupan Thingbi, people like Deen Dhyalupadhyay are, are approaching and emphasizing in a political way. And of course, lots of you may mention here at the moment that lots of sages and others have mentioned this before. Yes, that's true. But they are mentioning it in the, in the aspect of governing a country, of running a society, right? Which I think is important. Now we can end here. First, I'll read your quote, and then we can talk about what is what does the future lie, you know, what is the future for political Hinduism where you write, this is the woke generation that is connected to a broader global movement of the young who seek a better life for themselves and their ecosystems, an ecosystem of constant conflict. A narrative of injury, retribution, and aggression would be much less appealing to them than the message of sustainable growth, cultural confidence, and the lived experience of pluralism. The future of political Hinduism lies in being able to incessantly highlight such values and demonstrate them in everyday policy and activity. Political Hinduism has fought and won for now all its major battles. What lies ahead is the question of being able to create a purposeful program that brings hope and opportunity, which are the values Modi sought to embody and promise and the reasons that brought him to unprecedented success. Actually, it's a very important point again that you have mentioned is that a lot of political Hinduism was based on a lot of genuine victimhood or concerns uh, a lot uh, with huge chunks of uh, for machismo also at times. But a lot of genuine victimization, negationism of the record of Islamism in India. <clears throat> True political Hinduism never denied the record of casteism in India and discrimination committed by our own society, which is why political Hinduism is a force today. But now, in a very major way, we have won. Political Hinduism, we, I, I've never hidden it. I'm a political Hindu. I don't hide it. Full disclosure, I'm a political Hindu. Uh, so when I say we, I mean us political Hindus of different hues have won. Now the responsibility is what next? So Hindol, what next? Yeah, very, very important. Very, very important. I think this is very important. What next is going to be definitive, right? Because after having won all its cultural and political battles, political Hinduism now must deliver the promised land. It must deliver Ram Rajya in some shape or form. And here again, I mention in my book that that's why welfareism is increasingly more and more important in the politics of Narendra Modi. When I was writing about this in 2019 and so on and so forth, a lot of people did not see it. But today people are talking about it consistently because I think Narendra Modi understands and sees that India is going through a huge change. And especially with the kind of technologies that are being adopted with the coming of AI, there will be huge disruptions and there will be enormous opportunities. How we balance this disruption and opportunity is where our future, you know, what will determine our future. And in that intersection, in those intervening years, welfare is very, very important. The state must hold hands of many of its citizens whose lives will be disrupt disrupted maybe via technology or livelihoods impacted and so on and so forth. Therefore, welfare, and I'm only obviously talking about the moment about material welfare, but also a sort of cultural, civic welfare, you know, is very important for us to, um, you know, understand where political Hinduism is going. Because now having won all of its battles, political Hinduism, again, I reiterate, must deliver the promised land. It must deliver Ram Rajya. 
right? And Ram Rajya can only be, you know, delivered. I, I end the book by saying this, and I'll repeat it to, to you, Kushal. Must be delivered, can only be delivered if we move from understanding uh, Prabhu Shri Ram, not only as the son of, you know, Raja Dashrath, but also recognizing his universal, uh, universality uh, and, and his benevolence and his kindness and grace uh, that all of us, um, if we were contemplative, would feel every day. Now, this is a bit philosophical. I, I, I said it because, you know, you're so uh, interested and you're such an avid, um, you know, reader of philosophy yourself. But there is a political truth to this. A society, in order to acquire great power, must remain stable and must consistently economically grow. None of this can happen in a society that has consistent turbulence. Therefore, the opportunity must be unlocked step by step while keeping the society stable and providing a particular help, you know, helping hand to those who need it. That's the path, Kushal, to the promised land of political Hinduism, which is Ram Rajya. I think we could not have ended the podcast in a better way. Hindol, this was a wonderful book with, with all seriousness. I had such a wonderful time reading this. Uh, in, I, I've read quite a few of your books. You're such a prolific author. Now, what? This was number 11 now, Hindol? Number 11. That's right. Man, crazy. I mean, I, I've not even finished one and you've, you're at number 11. So clearly, uh, you, you just have a capacity to write. But this was serious. I had such a good time reading this book, Hindol. And, and this was a much needed book. Now, if somebody says, what is political Hinduism? Now we have a good book to go and give it to people that here, this is political Hinduism. Try and understand what different figures of political Hinduism say, what their grievances are, what they're doing in the future. So Hindol, uh, I want to congratulate you once again if, for writing this wonderful book. And thanks for coming. Thank you, Bushal. I really enjoyed, I always enjoy my conversation. Over the years, I've always really looked forward to and have really enjoyed my conversations with you. Let me say that uh, at a time when, you know, uh, newspapers have completely given up on, you know, books, pages and so on and so forth. There are very few spaces left for people who want to do deeper thinking, to engage in conversation and contemplative conversation with people who are also engaging in deep thinking. And yours is one of the few places where that sort of rich conversation really emerges. And I really thank you for building the wonderful Charvaka podcast. Thanks, Kushal. Thank you. Thanks, Indol. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap it up, I want to remind everyone in the description of the podcast, there is a link to buy the book. So please go click the link and buy the book over there. You can also follow Hindol on social media. I have left his X handle, uh, Twitter handle over there. And if you want to support the Charvak podcast, you can do it in multiple ways. You can go on kushalmehra.com slash shop and buy the Charvak podcast merchandise. You can send your donations to Kushal Mehra at ICICI through UPI. If you are in India, you can also become a member of the podcast podcast by joining the membership program on, on YouTube, on Fanmo or Patreon, wherever you are. But buy this book. It's very important to buy this book. It's a wonderful book. It is, it, it, and, and the language is not very complex. So you can understand and absorb the ideas of political Hinduism well. I, I really insist all of you. I, look, I read so many books, but I have to say in 2024 for me, this book was one of the best ones that I've read. So uh, I'll end at that. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.